Welcome to The Gray Report. I'm your host, Spencer Gray. And if you're a multifamily investor, active, passive, somewhere in the middle, I'm glad you're here because this is the YouTube show and podcast that we've designed especially for you, the investor, to bring you the best information right when you need to hear it to make some really smart and well-informed investing decisions. There's a lot of noise out there. We're trying to cut through that every single week by aggregating the best data and information. This week on the report, we have the National Rent Report from Yardy Matrix, a piece on hybrid work and the whole work from home environment by McKinsey. The National Association of Home Builders has a piece on home ownership in the United States. In the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies, has a piece, Eight Facts About Investor Activity in the Single-Family Rental Sector that you're going to want to know. Director of Communications and Marketing here at Great Capital, Dr. Matt Bostoggle is here once again, producing the show, keeping us honest, putting it all together. All right, let's get into it. All right, everyone, welcome back to the report. Thanks for being here, Matt. Hello. Hello. Um, interesting set of yeah. pieces today. Research some articles, um, some familiar, and some that we don't feature as frequently, um, but all really good sources today. Yeah. Um, but h- how do you feel? I always we start off every sh- every episode. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more of like a gut check. How you feeling? Because here, and this is yeah. why I'm asking. Because you know, this is a little bit inside scoop. But you know, before we do this. Mm-hmm. You know, you're back in the laboratory, really, for the, the last week. But you're yeah. you're going over every report, every article that's coming out. You're you're reading through it. Mm-hmm. You're analyzing it. You're you're making notes on it, and you're picking out the best couple pieces that are like, okay, investors need to know this. Yeah. And and so I'm always curious what's going on in Matt Bostonio's <laughs> brain, uh, yeah. like synthesizing, like what's going on in the housing, <laughs> what's going on in the housing industry this week, not, you know, what, what's the, what's the thing that's going on? What, what's top of mind? In terms of like sentiment, um, I'm thinking things are going a lot smoother yeah. than, uh, than, than maybe people were thinking like a month ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Last week was, was okay. And, and like, I just keep hearing good news. It's not scary. Good news. It's just smooth. It's a normal week in, in a year where we haven't had much normal. Um, yeah. A little bit of bad, a little bit of good, but uh, this is, I, I'm getting comfortable and a little less anxious in a way that I wasn't for a long time. Um, I, I mentioned this earlier and I'm going to probably reference it in my notes, but Goldman Sachs took their uh, recession prediction yeah. to 20%. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people that are that are getting a little more optimistic. And uh, the reason why I'm kind of optimistic is because things are not great enough where it's like, oh, well, we got something not under control, but we'll, we'll kind of discuss that. And, and in the apartment market, um, it's like gravity exists. There are, you know, supply, if a more supply is going to hurt demand a little bit sometimes, it, but also for the places that don't get half supply, rent, it, rent's going great. And, and it's just like the rules are applying now. Yeah. Um, it is, it, it's a lot more smooth and smooth is, is consistent too. So yeah. it may not have, you know, gangbusters rent growth, but, um, but it's something you can predict. And hopefully it's something that investors can kind of plot things out because, I didn't see any sharp. I'm not seeing any sharp right turns. No, definitely not any sharp right turns. I mean, we 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 are still, I think, experiencing a little bit of the correction, which is like a correcting to normalization mm-hmm. after you know 2021, which had crazy rank growth. To you know, the first half of 22 was strong, but then you know things just did take a right turn downwards in the second half of 22 and the first quarter of 2023. 
you know, you know, we're we're doing our um, Q2, finishing up our Q2 reports. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, Q2 ended, you know, last month at the end of June. You know, so we deliver those. You know, at the last, uh, you know, at the end of July, once we get all our financials, you know, do our analysis, yeah. put everything together, you know, make it look good. And we're, so we're you know going through reviewing reviewing those. I'm I'm doing video reports, and um, man, you know, the first quarter was was rough in terms of demand and you know we expense growth. It, it was like a double whammy. Like yeah. we saw. It, just we weren't leasing as many as we wanted to. Traffic was down, but then our expenses just had exploded. You know, yeah. whether it's you know utilities, you know, increasing, um, having to pay more to get the right people, you know, mm-hmm. on site, just materials, and um, we were fortunately able to make a lot of really good changes. And so, like, where our expenses are like you know materially down in some cases, like thirty percent quarter over quarter. Okay, um, but you know. And again, these are these, these these are anecdotes, but you know, where rent growth and all of that is is positive, mm-hmm. and it is more like a normal year that we would have seen in the last decade or so of like you know moderate, low single yeah. digit growth, yeah. you know, three percent rent growth. Four, you know, we're in the threes and fours, mm-hmm. which is like normal. Yeah, but you know, compared to the last, you know, again, year and a half ago, yeah, it's like it seems like nothing. And mm-hmm. then expenses, you know, are there? I think they're leveling off and normalizing, and, and people are, we are and others are controlling them. Um, but there's a sense that you know the margins have just gotten thinner. Um, and the other difficulty is, you know, if you're on a floating rate loan, you've have have these um, rate cap escrows that you're yeah. also having to continue to pay for. Which yeah. is a major drag on free cash flow. It's your money. It's going into escrow, mm-hmm. but you know it's not money that you can distribute. And you know, we've got a property, yeah, property that you know it's, it's it had we had high expenses. You know we've made major improvements. Things are going in the right direction, but you know we still have to. We're putting a lot of cash into these mm-hmm. rate cap escrows, which you know glad we've got it, but it's a little frustrating. But it's not showing up. You know, kind of on the the true bottom line, of what we can distribute. Yeah. So you know, there's there's one deal where we're missing. You know, our pro form distributions, not necessarily on property performance, but because of these rate caps escrows. And so we know we're like, well, we just have to overperform to be able to get back to, you know, where we want to be. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's so things are good, but I would say they're, I, and and we look at the you know we'll look at the yardy data, but things are a little bit. They're, they are normal, but mm-hmm. it's like a soft normal. Yeah, yeah. That's and it is, and that's kind of been the story. You know, people say moderating. Um, I don't like to say cool down. I, yeah. I do think that it is it, moderating implies it's a reaction from from an extreme mm-hmm. and and the yeah. challenge. And hopefully, you know, because this is a long term investment, yeah. there's enough of investors have experienced the high points from the past two years where it kind of kind of cushioned the blow. Um, but if you get if you time it ex- at, at the wrong at the wrong moment, then this is not not a good great. No, it, it's not. And um, yeah, no, it's time that we've you, if you haven't battened down the hatches, you know, you're you're really in a tough spot, mm-hmm. and um, it's going to be kind of trudging through, you know, the slogging through, you know, the thick yeah. muck until we get you know our footing a little bit, and, and we're starting to feel it. Um, but it's going to be a work, and it's they're all slow moving, you know, um, beasts. And yeah. it doesn't happen overnight. Now it can happen over a quarter or two, but um, you know we're actually in some markets. We're actually seeing you know slow down now compared to like the winter. It's 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 strange. It, it, yeah, in a couple of markets we're seeing things cool off. We don't know. It's the middle of the summer. You know, it's Fourth of July a couple of weeks ago or what? But um, it's it's we're not. I don't think we're out of the woods. Mm-hmm. Like we're not seeing we're not seeing like negative growth by any means. But we're also not having a, a 
you know, gangbuster summer, which yeah. no one really ever thought we thought we were. I would be, I, I'm going to be interested to see how seasonal rent, how seasonal rent growth is going to be for 2023. Um, because if the, it, it, it was all out of whack for the past, you know, two yeah. or three years. And so this could keep it, this, it could there could be more rent growth in the latter half. Yeah, the shockwaves and the reverberations, like, yeah, we're yeah. getting back to normal, but we still are feeling those. And, and so it, uh, it's not going to look like a complete normal season, but we're getting closer to yeah. at least like mimicking it. Yep. Well, Matt, let's jump into the Yardi Matrix report, the National Multifamily Report. And we feature um, these quite, quite a bit. Um, they really do a nice job of putting these together. And, you know, I am noticing, Matt, Indianapolis is not on the cover image. That means Indianapolis okay. has lost the spot for top rent growth, <laughs> which which is not surprising. You know, following a little bit more granular can only be on top for so long. Um, but uh, sorry, you just about like that's fine. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, top line numbers year over year rent growth is at one point eight percent, and month over month is at zero point four, which is well in line actually from the reporting from other organizations. Um, I was crunching the numbers last night and, um, you know, we follow a number of, of rent growth trackers and the average month over month rent growth has increased each consecutive month of 2023. Um, but it's still just not at the level as it typically is. Um, top markets for year over year rent, rent growth. Um, just kind of give the top four here is New Jersey, New York, Indianapolis, and Chicago. These top four are the only markets to beat the 10 year rent growth average of 4.7%. Now that 4.7 is elevated due to the massive rent growth we experienced yeah. during the pandemic. So these four markets are doing very well, I think, to beat that boosted number. Um, for more of the moment data, uh, the monthly rent growth leaders are New York, Chicago, Columbus, and Boston. Now Columbus, they newly they've swapped out a few of the markets in Yardi Matrix, so they're including Columbus. I, I think they've excluded Kansas City. Um, they're they they just shaken up things a little bit. And Columbus to the uh, is worth noting because it is yeah it's the third highest in month-over-month um, -month rent growth. And all of them saw about 1% of rent growth yeah. from May to June, um, give or take. For the monthly and yearly figures, the story really continues to be one where big cities on the East Coast are bouncing back and the yearly figure, uh, I'm sorry, where big cities on the East Coast are bouncing back, the, the Midwest is doing consistently strong. And, and there is this kind of, this kind of general uh, reach, there's a little bit more regionality than you think. Northeast is doing pretty good. Yeah. West is doing pretty good. Some of the Sun Belt, not doing great. Miami is still doing, you know. <laughs> doing its thing. Still doing its thing. Um, I did want to note Miami is, is one of the most interesting things here is their lifestyle asset class. They are the third lowest rent growth. This is uh, for month over month and, and year over year actually as well. A you think that's a, like a base effect? So like they were already high rents in Miami, maybe, but then they're the number one for renters by necessity. Yeah, yeah, that's they're, interesting. That's huge, huge bifurcation of rent growth really suggests that the gap between the uh, high end apartments and the low end apartments in Miami is closing. Well, and it, and again, is that because of demand? They had already raised rents so much in Miami. You yeah, know, they were building new apartments, delivering new apartments, and incredibly high rents. Yeah. Not haven't been delivering as as many, and so they're not getting the growth. But at the same time, all those older properties at lower rents are mm -hmm. have are seeing increases. Now that's a that is like a perfect example of what what could happen, you know, or maybe what what happens a lot of times when yeah. new apartments come in. 
They're the new ones. They're the nice ones. Yeah. And what do you do? If you're a competitor mm -hmm. that's maybe not as nice, but sort of close, you're like, that's the new high watermark. And you're like, well, let's just bridge the gap. You yep. know, we're, we're charging a thousand. They're charging two. Well, okay. Obviously we can't charge 2000 for the same unit, but maybe we fix things up a little bit, make it a little yep. bit nicer. And we charge 1500, you know, is that value? Is that different? Does that make sense? Are we making the right value proposition? Mm -hmm. You have to know right where that, that line is. Um, but it's like, you can always narrow the gap because people are always looking for value and a discount and if yeah. nothing else in between, you know, you, you can find a really nice exactly. niche. Exactly. And that's the challenge. It also illustrates the challenge right now is everyone's clamoring for more affordable apartments. And it's just hard to convince people to build a, to build something that is, you know, affordable or like workforce housing, these kind of, uh, you know, you can't like the ones that are like maybe built in 1980s. Uh, you can't just like magically make that appear. And because yeah. all the ones that are newly built are probably going to be the nicer ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just yeah. hard. Yeah. Unless it's maybe like government subsidy, but that's just in a whole nother category. It's just, it's a spotty, you can't address that problem mm -hmm. um, as effectively as the market is having a difficult time to uh, to address that problem. Yeah. It's figuring it out. Yeah. Um, looks like on uh, lease renewals uh, are staying really pretty strong. The headline here is um, transacted rents, renewal rates resist slowdown. So we're seeing still some pretty strong renewal figures. I mean, if you'll remember, um, you know, prior to COVID, you know, the average renewal rate um, or retention rate in the U.S. was around 50%. Yeah. And people kind of were staying put longer and so that pushed up closer to 60%. And many markets were still in the high 50s, 60% range. I mean, Miami, Matt, it's 70%, which, yeah. is, which is incredible. Um, but people are still, you know, uh, staying put. And for a while, it was because, you know, if you rented somewhere else, you know, that you were going to get hit with full market and the mm -hmm. rent was up a lot more. Um, and so they're like, we want to save some money staying put. But, you know, as the market has gotten a little, um, little less tight and there's been a little bit more favor to the renter and a little bit more, you know, negotiating power and there's yep. been some more concessions, you know, anecdotally, I would think that this number would start to really go down, which is why, you know, they're saying, you know, just, you know, it's resisting the slowdown. Um, still, you know, rates are up, um, pretty well over the long-term average. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it said, you know, what is it? New Jersey, I guess at, at 82.3% had the highest renewal rate, reflecting the lack of available available options as occupancy rates are above 97%. Yeah. Um, Not going to move. There's but, nowhere to go. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing worth noting, and I, I, may, have, I may have noted this earlier, is 90, they have 95% for occupancy. It's, it's fairly steady. Um, it's still, you know, it's not as high as it was, but it is not, you know, it's been steadily falling down since yeah. that high for so long that to see this kind of steady, steady, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Again, smooth. Smooth is good. Smooth is good. Now, we would like to be able to predict things. Um, they're also noting here on the report, Matt, you know, the supply and demand demographics, borrowers issue high cost mortgages. Mm -hmm. did I what, how did I, did I pronounce that correctly? Shoe. Cost of debt has jumped significantly since the spring of 2022 when the Fed started increasing policy rates. Lenders, including Fannie and Freddie, have seen mortgage volumes plunge as a result of a wide market bid-ask spread. Sound familiar? And then more, more borrowers prefer five-year fixed-rate loans that can be prepaid after three years to provide flexibility when rates are expected to decline. Hey, here's makes a, sense. Hey, here's a real risk. You want to get a floating rate now, just ride them all the way while it gets... That's Don't tempt us, Matt. <laughs> no, it, it, no it, it's a serious arc. You know, I'll give you an example of a deal we're mm -hmm. looking at. 
um, that we, our conclusion was the best execution for the steel would be bridge load. Mm. Um, now might, I think it's like surprising people hear me saying that because we're talking about the kind of the danger of bridge loans over the last yeah. year, but we used to use bridge loans all the time and they can, they can be a great, they can be an excellent tool. Yeah. just, you know, it's like any tool you can, you know, use it for good, bad purposes, dangerous, mm -hmm. positive, whatever. And, you know, the, the specific on this deal is, you know, it was coming out of a, um, like a control which the the rents it was a affordable property that had lost its affordability where it had been transitioned out of affordability now it's market rate but the rents were still all at the affordable rents mm -hmm. and so you know you're only getting your loan proceeds based on what the actual um you know the receipts are what the actual income is of that property mm -hmm. now you know that you know you can cycle through those leases and get those rents up in probably a year or two but you know the well, loan proceeds that you'd be able to get today based on the current income because you know lending now is all income restricted debt yeah. service coverage ratio restricted not loan to value or you know or, or L, you know ltv restrictions it used to be it's like you know whatever the value you yeah. can borrow up to 75 percent. now it's like no you need to make sure we're clearing this 1.25 okay so so it's not DSCR. they they look at they look at how much money you're bringing in or, oh yeah or how much the value is and they kind of have that it's their program. Yeah, it, 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 it's usually most things must must be true. You know, yeah. you, you know, we met the okay. loan must not exceed. You know, it basically will have a max LTV, mm -hmm. and it, so that you can go up to this max loan to value, but it also has to meet this debt service coverage ratio requirement. Okay. So you still need to be making you know twenty five percent over just the minimum to cover the debt service. Yeah. And then if you're doing that, then we'll max, we'll lend up to whatever, you know, we hit this max loan to value. Mm -hmm. And so like in the past, a lot of operators and buyers were, you know, borrowing at around 75% loan to value, not a problem. You can clear your DSCR, maybe you clear your DSCR at 1.26 or 1.3 or, you know, whatever it was. And, you know, that's what your loan proceeds were based on, your leverage, you know, and also the, you know, it's all risk, you know, the higher leverage, um, you know, the bank will give you different terms, whether you have lower leverage. So like okay. if you have lower leverage, typically they'll give you a little bit of better spread to give you more years of interest only. Okay. Um, so, so there's a couple of differences between kind of where you fall in that risk spectrum um, when it comes to the, you know, your, your lender and what they'll, what they'll give you. And yeah. so, but yeah, so it's been DSCR constrained rather than, okay. you know, loan to value. Yeah. That's what the banks in general are, are really looking at that. DSCR. They always are. They always have. They always so have been, but it's yeah. been the issue now okay. it, because so you'd say, be like, all right, we're buying it for this price, mm -hmm. but a seventy-five percent. You used to be able to just kind of assume you wouldn't. I mean, the the you, it wouldn't be difficult to hit the DSCR mm -hmm. because we were buying it reasonable cap rates. There you go. But now we're buying it. Everyone's buying at low cap rates. Mm -hmm. That makes it difficult to hit that DSCR. And this is where. There's going to be some business plans that aren't going to be doing that well mm -hmm. because we know just the growth that you had to assume everyone was buying at these low cap rates. Yeah. You know, all, or almost everybody. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we were some of the few that really, that, I mean, we, we drew a line in the sand and said no negative, negative leverage. Mm -hmm. Other groups did the same thing, but we were in the minority. And, you know, you hear this all the time. It's a bit like, oh, you know, we create the positive leverage because we're going to raise rents. We're going to execute our business plan. Yeah. And that's definitely the case. Like we wouldn't be... Do, we wouldn't be in business if we were just going to buy and leave it and not do anything. You mm -hmm. always want to improve. The way you get a higher rate of return is not just by, you know, assuming that the asset is going to appreciate, but we're going to force appreciation by increasing net operating income, either by raising the income or reducing expenses or 
ideally both. But if I'm a banker, that sounds a lot like promises. Yeah, okay. Well, it doesn't. Okay, you can tell me. And that. some lenders will lend to you based on your pro forma, mm-hmm. especially kind of in the in the bridge space or debt fund space. They have more flexibility. But if you go to you know the, any of the agencies, it's based on you know what you're collecting. You know yep. what your what your T three says, what your T twelve says. It's like not not just what you're expecting, but what. No, you're I mean, you really you have to you have to prove it out, especially okay. now. I mean, again, yeah. we've talked about this week after week it's credit is not you know loosening yeah credit is tightening and yeah. so you know, they're these banks are want to make sure that the loans that they are issuing are good loans good borrowers and not just okay it's not business as it was in 2021 yeah which is interesting so i wonder is there like an opening here because they talk about the how the low volume for fannie and freddie means that they're missing their target for how much they they need to lend. Yeah. And does that mean that there are some people that could that could get like a deal um, or, or that they will make an arrangement in order I, to meet the target? I believe well, we'll have to confirm this. I've been told that Fannie and Freddie have been told that, you know, okay, don't worry as much about your quotas or your caps okay. because the, the concern is always that, you know, if they don't lend to the, if they miss those, they'll get their like quotas, the caps reduced. They won't mm-hmm. get to have as much to borrow, or, borrow, to lend, sorry. Yeah. If you remember, I think it was back in 2019, um, Fannie and Freddie were at those caps. Mm-hmm. They ran into those caps. Yeah. They didn't have any more money to lend. It all and, and spreads blew out. It was really frustrating. People had to look at alternative, you know, financing measures. It wasn't a long period of time. We have the opposite problem now, yeah. it, where you know they had the caps increased where they can lend, and, and I forget what the caps are for for twenty twenty three. But they're not seventy five billion or something. Okay, you can scroll that, 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 that's, that sounds about right. That's about what I think. I'm because it was increased to seventy billion a piece a couple of years ago. Yeah, um, yeah. Fannie, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac won't meet allocations now at seventy five billion again. I believe that's a piece. If rates remain at okay. six and a quarter to six and a half, I don't see us getting to seventy five billion. Not even close. One GSC executive said to the recent Siri Finance Council annual conference without transaction activity, it's hard to see volumes get anywhere near seventy billion. Along those lines, the agencies changed the production mandate for mission-driven affordable and green loans to half of origination as opposed to a specific number of units. So so that means, you know, again, green emission, green, you know, there's an a, um, environmental component, mm-hmm. you know, making properties more efficient, low flows, LEDs. And mission is, you know, targeting, you know, the moderate income band. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget what percentage of AMI, but you know, not super luxury. You're you're providing housing that's kind of getting close to that median income okay. range. And if you fall in that category again, it's not like subsidized. It's not like affordable housing. You're just you're providing housing to a certain income range. Of the current rents are. You can get some better loan terms, such as uh, maybe a 35 year amortization. If the agencies are still providing that, I've, mm-hmm. you know, I've heard I've gotten mixed messaging that they are slowing that down. Then I'm also hearing that if it's a true mission deal, they will still be open to it. Um, but then also like interest only in, in your spread. You know, again, a green or mission, they can get a little bit better on their spread. Which a spread is like the profit, the interest mm-hmm. they're going to charge over the base rate. So you know, typically people are borrowing either you know on a five, seven, ten year term. So the loan is based on the five, seven, ten year treasury plus a certain spread that the lender is trying to make over that account for their risk. You know, so like right now it's kind of, you know, mid 200, you know, call it 220 to 280 spread, 300 yeah. point spread right now. You know, and, and so, but they've got some flexibility uh, uh, with that spread. 
And that's where you're asking Matt of like, hey, they make it desperate. So yeah, people get yeah. a deal. The deal would come in the spread. Okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe the amortization, maybe the IO, but the spread is really where they can help. If it goes from 250 to 280, well, that's, you know, that, that, uh, that's 30, 0.3%, you know, of your rate that goes down. That can be meaningful because yeah. when your rate goes down, that affects your debt service coverage ratio. Less, um, yeah. less debt service that you have to pay. Therefore, you know, you can get a better ratio, which means you can get more proceeds, mm -hmm. which then, you know, more proceeds is more debt service. But, you know, so it's a little bit of a, you know, cyclical chicken and the egg, yeah. but the better that you do, the more proceeds, yeah, better one value. I don't run the, I don't run the Excel things, but it, it's crazy how much the numbers go up if you change a small amount of the debt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We've got other people to run the Excel things. Yes. <laughs> Gratefully. Thankfully yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, All right. Just real quick, man, yeah. employment and supply trends. Again, this is looking into the future. Let's see where things are are going. Maybe, you know, look at some yeah, not, acquisition it targets. It seem like um, much has changed specifically, but yeah. I did want to pull out uh, Indianapolis has a great, uh, has, has great prospects, uh, really great, really great rent growth, really um, pretty decent job growth, um, really promising for investors, uh, completions as a percentage of total. So not a whole lot of supply coming online. And then in the next page, you look at the uh, income to uh, rent to income levels, or I'm sorry, it may have been the one before. Either way, it's really cheap to live in Indianapolis. There's not an, a lot of apartments coming online, and there's really just all of these factors are uh, support the idea that uh, they have rent income ratios. Oh no, it was a, it was the page before. I was, oh, sorry. I uh, I'll, I'll find it for everybody just so they can look at it. But yeah, no, I mean, Matt, we we talk. I mean, we don't need. People have heard us talk about why we like Indianapolis a lot, but I mean, you don't have that much supply coming online, but the rents are growing, the jobs are growing, and it's still affordable, which means that there is room to grow. I mean, of this major market list of, you know, what percentage of your income is going to rent, you know, New York tops the list, your renters by necessity are paying, uh, Matt, 44%. I mean, yeah. it, it's horrible. Rent control seems like it's really working out for the Empire State um, or, the, or the Big Apple. Um, San Diego, same story, 38% renters by necessity. I mean, that's just, that's just a, a travesty. It, it's too bad. LA, I mean, horrible. Um, but go down to the bottom of the list. I mean, you've got Indianapolis. It's surprising to see Austin there as well, but I mean, Indianapolis, you know, for, um, renters by necessity, 27%, you know, that could ideally would be even lower. Anything over 30% mm -hmm. is considered rent burdened, but you know, it's a market that there, it's not rent burdened. Most of these other markets are in the thirties. Yeah. Um, but then if you are, you know, lifestyle units, more expensive stuff, you know, it's 25% for Indianapolis overall, 26%, um, income to rent, um, ratio, which is, you know, again, pretty, 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 pretty darn good. And again, the, one of the reasons why people are moving around is, yep. you know, affordability. And that, uh, and that plays a little bit into the, the McKinsey report. Let's hop over, yeah. That uh, it is this idea of so okay. The title of there uh, of this McKinsey report is "Empty Spaces and Hybrid Places: The Pandemic's Lasting Impact on Real Estate." Um, I'm glad I caught this. This came in last week. McKinsey casts a large shadow as the oldest and largest of the big three consulting firms, and their analysis uh, I think it deserves some coverage here. Um, if not for the quality of the material itself, then for the business decisions that it is generating as McKinsey consultants advise companies and how many, governments do you think they had how many consultants they had on they had involved in this image uh i don't know is this a um what is this is this a it's not i don't, I, 
Probably not AI. What, what is this? It looks almost it, too perfect to be to be real, but it's not. It's definitely not real. Anyway, but I mean, they've got the live walls and this guy in the office having fun. What what, what is this about? This is like this is this the lip work play? This is a lively commercial. Uh, this is a lively commercial center where um, a hybrid environment of office, apartment, and retail is creating something that is more resilient than a monoculture oh. of office buildings. Oh, so we're looking into the future. I oh I see. Yeah. Matt, you got it down. So they've got their what is what is that's what store is this a bookstore? Is this a package a painting oh, store? Abstract store. art? Jackson Pollock store? Is that what this is? Um there it looks like they've got some kind of a brewery next to Cafe it. Moon and fine. On top yeah, is offices cafe. in the background there's balconies and apartments. Um, they're living, shopping. They're buying, shopping, working, everything's there. all very green. We're in our green spaces, and this guy's getting mm-hmm. some done in the boardroom up there. Looks it's like he's throwing someone. a rock at the window, maybe uh, okay. trying to break out. Yeah. Um, so, but so McKinsey, they're obviously so smart. People pay them in stupid money for their, you know, their their fancy PowerPoint presentations. Shaping nations, um, but really, uh, uh, what do they have to say? That, that, so good. They, yeah, they don't, we don't really have to actually look very far for the thrust of their article. It's in the title, um, Empty Spaces. Do you think people are paying like hundreds of thousands of dollars basically for this information that they could just read in this report? Yes, like so, Like someone's, per, so, like there are companies that are so like, tell us when you do on hybrid work. Mm-hmm. And they're like, sure, we'll, we'll we'll take your business. And then like, we've got this PDF you can just read. Yeah, well, just, I don't trust a PDF. I want you to come in here in person. Like, I need to see the, the slide deck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so the many bright-eyed, deck. you know, very well, well-qualified consultants that are I think in regurgitating a lot of the insights here. Um, and again, their point is empty spaces. Those are the empty office spaces and hybrid places. Those are the hybrid work places. So is this, this is an empty office. Yeah. Right here, Matt. Um, getting ready to be, become maybe something else. Um, and that's, that's, that's one of their points actually. And I love their, uh, they do actually come out against uh, office to multifamily conversions, which is great, but um, their at a glance summary is 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 really helpful I just kind of get a, a general idea of everything and i'm kind of going to give my response here so they say hybrid work is here to stay um it's not the first time we've heard it, uh, something like this is a more useful as like a solid claim we're at a point where we're seeing louder voices calling people back to the office and i'm sure mckinsey has heard their fair share of bosses saying the same thing um yeah. the fact that they're taking a stand saying that, what do you all think about this mckinsey yeah yeah and they're not only saying that people are not coming back to the office their projections are you know, 19% uh, down by 2030 in their moderate projection and 30% in their uh, in their severe projection. So it's going to last. Um, it, and yeah, it, the hybrid work is here to stay. And, and, but has here, so and it's a, maybe a new form where we have a different, we've thought about it, but hybrid work's been here for a long time. For it's sure. just, it's now a um, new reality and a new standard yeah, and yeah. it's less of a unique situation, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that and maybe that would be a better way is is like this increase in hybrid work isn't isn't going to erode at the level that people that people may have thought or that people are going for, um, which I think is a pretty strong stance to take because it did seem like there's growing voices. And I still I think there's an outside shot that office demand may come back a little bit more. But um, I think their point is still valid. We've seen a cutoff in, in office men that will never come back. Yeah. Um, the ripple effects is their next next point. Um, really good point, and their summary comments really focus on declining downtown realist uh, retail markets. But I think it goes beyond retail for sure. And some of their detail, um, their detailed commentary does talk about um, does talk about other places, but really they're focusing on retail spaces, and um, and that's their next 
That's their next point is that demand for office and retail space in superstar cities will remain below pre-pandemic levels. Um, so you don't have people at the office taking a break. Not, yeah, they're not going to shop. They're not going to go to the restaurants. And maybe hotels, I would think hotels, convention centers, those, uh, you know, those demand may be lower, although- That are more focused on business travel. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. maybe yeah, maybe. Know. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, we obviously the pandemic's a big hit to that and it has yeah. not, it, it it's come back, but not the same level. Because yeah. I mean, people do want to go out, meet clients, you know, meet partners, but there's still a lot of meetings that are done virtually now. I mean, I mean, the pre-pandemic video- calls i mean it's hard to realize they weren't very common yeah. i mean i remember being on kind of the first few zoom calls just before the pandemic um and they, they weren't stand they weren't standard by any stretch of the mag- imagination it, it, it would have been a little bit it would have been um novel to a lot of people right in the pandemic to be like hey let's, let's hop on a video conference together for our first meeting let's hop on a video conference yeah, yeah. Been, it would have been like a little much it'd been like let's just have a call yeah let's get together for coffee but now it's like no but now it's kind of what is expected yeah yeah it um it did supercharge a lot of things and they got a lot of you know systems in place that wouldn't you know that that probably wouldn't have we wouldn't be where we are right now um i think that when you're looking at the real estate I think that they're like, it just seems, everything seems to follow the fact that all these people aren't gathering in an office, whether it's they're taking on more video calls or whatever, they're not gathering in the office. So not leaving, they're not going to the surrounding area. This whole kind of, the whole yeah. space itself is devoid of activity, devoid of foot traffic. And um, they do talk about how online sales have cut into retail. I think it's just a lot of this has got to be foot traffic. You're not in that space. I think I would. 99% of the time, I'd rather go into a store than order something online, yeah. um, If especially if I'm close to it. Um, so there's a little bit of a chicken the egg. Maybe they did a more online because they weren't downtown as much. Yeah. Um, but they get to the, really what, what they talk about the most and what I think what's most interesting here is what makes a downtown succeed, what makes it not succeed, yeah. and how can we kind of force, force the success. Yeah. They talk about how real estate is local. Which I'm going to give them a pass because not everyone is. Uh, McKinsey's writing to an audience that maybe not real estate professionals that they don't know their real estate is uh, locally diverse. Um, but their their answer is a little more interesting. They're saying that cities and buildings can adapt and thrive by taking hybrid approaches. Um, so mixed use buildings, maybe yeah, you know we know about mixed buildings. Yeah. Um, in multi use office and real estate. And retail space; those are noted in the summary. Um, but I want to kind of drill down to their to their specific comments, where they talk about not only just mixed use, but that a building uh, something where yeah, a building can be retail for one tenant, and then then next it's it's apartments or an office. Something where you build a new building mm-hmm. that is more flexible to different kind of tenants, yeah, um, rather than you know. It, it is a dedicated office building. It is a dedicated this. Um, and I, I think that that's started to really happen. I know a lot of developers who who are office developers who are building a lot of optionality into mm-hmm. design. And they're like, okay, let's build this office building. But knowing the challenges of like the office and multifamily conversions today, let's build this. But like, what if we wanted, if this, we wanted this to be a living space, an apartment, could it be converted yeah. into an apartment? And let's say even like halfway through, we're not getting any 
interests in our office, we can pivot to a hard pivot. And the same thing with, you know, retail or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever it is, like, how do we have flexibility? Yeah. And it's like, they're probably more expensive on the front end to build that building that's, yeah. that can fill many uses, but they're seeing the risk of, you know, emptiness. Yeah. Which is probably a lot more, yeah. uh, a lot more key. And I'm sure that'll smooth out over time when we have a better understanding of what the demand is for office. But yeah. like right now it's a, like, this is what I know how to build, but I don't know if anybody wants it. So like, I, I mean, it's cases where like the, the deal was already in, you know, the, the development was already entitled. They're like going down the road and yeah. they're like, I don't know if we, you know, should do it this way. Like we're already, we're already kind of, you know, we're already kind of pregnant with the idea and the project but, yeah. but like can we make some changes so where we can pivot if we need to like, yeah how do we turn this thing into condos it, add more retail? I, think, I think it's smart i think that there are some buildings probably where it does just make a whole lot more sense to build it for a uh, single particular use but but not only on the building level um and, and i do like this point though they do note office to multifamily conversions and um, they kind of put the kibosh on it. <laughs> yeah. While their sample size is limited to superstar cities, they find that if all the excess office space were converted to housing, you would only increase housing supply in these cities by 2.6 or less, often much less. That, that, that's a powerful point. Even if we had the means to convert all of these empty office spaces, which we don't, and even if all these office spaces were able to be converted into apartments, which they're not, <laughs> would simply would still add a strikingly small amount of existing housing supply and almost more than like we build more apartments in a year. But maybe it's true. But, you know, but it's not I don't know if it's the goal or I don't think anyone is saying that, you know, office to multifamily conversion is going to be the silver bolt to solve like the housing problem. Yeah, I think they're saying I think we're saying, that, you know, it, it could potentially help. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously it's gonna, and, and it, it doesn't change the picture, but I mean, two to 3%, I mean, that is something, yeah, that's I mean, true. I mean, that is like, that is a lot for a, you know, a kind of steady growth market that there'd be a normal year. And so if you're adding additional sort of supply, you know, it, it could increase it by a third, you know, yeah, easily yeah. by a third. So it's, it's not, it's not nothing, it's not nothing, true, true. but it's, but bottom line, it's not, it, it's not a fix it's not yeah. the solution you for the housing crisis it, it could be it could be good point very good point a solution or a part of the solution for the of the question what are we going to do with all this space yeah. and i think that's really what you know cities and owners investors are grappling with is we have these buildings what do, what do we do i mean they're, they're you know littering our downtown mm -hmm. so okay so i think that you're using the word space is uh is really key here um, it's not necessarily, maybe the solution isn't a building level thing. Um, and, and instead of converting office to apartments, they're calling for a more varied mix, like at the neighborhood level. Um, yes, they do argue for new buildings to be reused, but the most compelling point is where is they're making, uh, and they give examples of cities that were the least effective were ones where there is a mix of retail, yeah. uh, uh, of residential and of office and workplaces all in the same, all in the same place. Um, this would take a lot uh, to, in order to like affect this change and bring, yeah. in, you know, a more varied presence. I, now it would be the time to do it though. Yeah, I, th I totally think, and you could do this on a neighborhood by neighborhood level. Mm -hmm. You know, you wouldn't have to buy fiat, change everything. It's just, if it works here, let's, but it would take effort by local governments, businesses, resident stakeholders for like zoning. Um, but, uh, but again, um, if your alternative is these empty office spaces, I don't see why that's not going to light a fire no, under some people. And I, and I think, you know, there's an article um, about 
I, I forget which city it was, but taking, oh, I think it was Boston. Um, mm-hmm. You see the article? I think, mm-hmm. I think Andrew, I think Andrew sent it to us. Um, I'll have to look at it. It basically, it looks like Boston may be offering some major incentives, like a big break on your property taxes up to 75% for office to multifamily conversions Uh-oh, because really? the economics don't really make sense. So they, they say, mm-hmm. but we got to do something with these and whether it's feasible or not, because I'm sure, you know, the, the city government leaders aren't really digging out how feasible it is. You know, it's an idea and let's throw it out here, see if anybody wants to do it. But there needs to be some economic incentive to make most of these deals pencil because they just don't pencil economically. When you look at it, it'd be better just to knock the whole building down most of the time. Yeah. So it, it'll be, I think some cities are going to be, uh, get really aggressive on it. I can see some cities, mm-hmm. you know, buying certain assets out just outright, especially yeah. when they start to fall into special servicing and foreclosure, which is, you know, that's the whole other part of the office story is that values are down 30, 40, 50%. Um, you know, as yeah. their leases turn over, as, is they're going to continue to turn over, they're either going to empty out or the rates are going to go down. Yeah. Um, and you know, the re- loans are coming due. And so there's, there's a lot of issues that's going to take place. And we reported on last episodes, it's going to be a couple of years as all of this continues to roll over, you know, more and more kind of issues and distress. And what is the plan when this starts piling up and yep. you've got, you know, whole blocks of, you know, distressed, you know, uh, real estate that it's going to be, it can be a process to go through that. Yeah. You know, is a city going to come in and say, you know, we want to either partner with a private group or we're just going to come in here and buy all this pennies on the dollar. And so we can just control the process, which, you know, there can be some poor unintended consequences and maybe the develop, the redevelopment slows down because the city's getting mm-hmm. in the way. Hopefully it's the right balance of, you know, public, par- public, private partnerships that, that speed things up. Um, and get rid of red tape, but yeah. you know, each city is going to be different. Yeah, I yeah, I'd like a you know kind of a carrot rather than a stick. I think that rezoning could really open up a lot of a, a lot of interesting options for people. Um, and again, it's like it this it's the same thing for I'm sure for the building level and for the neighborhood level. If you're if you're looking for flexibility, it's going to probably cost a little bit more upfront. It's not going to be the most efficient solution. Yeah, but it may be the most resilient solution. Yeah. Um, and, and again, like I, I keep, they keep really leaning on the word hybrid here, but to me, it's, it, it, it sounds a whole lot like diversification. It's like, you want to diversify your investments. So it, if one company goes down and you're only invested in that, then you're, then you're screwed. Yeah. It, it's, it's really, I mean, this piece is getting to a much larger, um, point beyond like the future of hybrid work and are people are going to work hybridly or not it gets into and i don't know maybe this was like scope creep of the of the piece but it's like you know what our conclusion <laughs> our conclusion is we're gonna have to completely redesign all the cities that's basically what they're saying heck yeah they're like which we're you're gonna that's how you're maybe this is the lead magnet to city planners not necessarily yeah, yeah. are the business owners have the hybrid work at the city planners are like mckinsey things we need to completely redesign everything how we yeah, run yeah. the cities Let's all, you know, put them on a whatever size retainer. I'm made. glad that you settled on that, uh, on that little, those quadrants. I don't know what the, yeah. this, this little map here where it has the, the factors that they think lead to a particular market being vulnerable to, uh, to this hybrid situation. Um, now they're on, on one level, there's on the, I'm sorry, the Y axis, there's a business mix where, um, if you have more workers in the knowledge economy, more large firms, more, uh, more ratio, more ratio of inbound commuters to residents, and cultural acceptance of re- remote work and necessary technology is a little lower. Then that is going to make you a little more vulnerable. Now, on the other hand, 
on this x-axis, if you have more residences and stores, more green space, this uh, flatter price gradient, then uh, maybe maybe you're going to survive. Rather, But if you have more office buildings, maybe it's just only office buildings and there's less green space, a little bit more dense, then um, then it's going to be a little tougher. That was another another point that they made too, is the um, denser. Uh, the denser cities had a little bit tougher of a go. You know, it's interesting just looking at, you know, um, these factors relative to how these cities have been performing from a multifamily side. Yeah. And, you know, um, I, I'm not as tied into how London is performing, but San Francisco has been, you know, a big loser, you know, in, in the, in kind of just as a city recently, it's a really sad story and we don't, you know, have the time to get into it, but I mean, really been suffering, you know, from the multifamily investor standpoint. New York City, I mean, there's all kind of challenges and problems with New York City, but it's really, you know, unlike San Francisco, mm-hmm. it really bounced back after the pandemic. And you were seeing in general, you know, the Northeast um, has been doing pretty yeah. well in terms of, you know, performance. And so um, I think some of that's correlated, not totally, but, you know, if when I see, you know, one structure, one uh, type of city has more residences and stores, Flatter prices, more green space versus more office buildings, steeper prices and less green space. Yeah, I'm like, not sure about that. There other San Francisco's got a lot of green space. I don't yeah, know yeah. they're talking, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't have the numbers in front of me yeah. on that one in particular. Okay, Matt, let's move on to where do you want to go? The National Association of yeah. Home Builders talking about home ownership yeah. or the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies. Let's uh, let's let's talk about this uh, National Association of Home Builders. It's a short Nahab. Really, uh. Really, a map more like it, but they have some uh, some insights here. I think there's fertile ground really in examining home ownership patterns. And at a glance, if you look at um, what they have here, is a map. Uh, it's kind of a heat map uh, that takes every single county in in the country, and it shows you what the home ownership rate for them is. Um, honestly, at a glance, it's kind of hard to glean a pattern, other than the fact that it seems that the home ownership percentage is lower in the West, but they as they explain here, a lot of this clears up if you're looking at urban versus not urban counties. Yeah. So the, yeah. the yeah. urban ones have less own home ownership. But honestly, I, I, I think there's something more to this here. And I think that there are a number of local and regional aspects that might be correlated with home ownership. For instance, there's a county in southern the southern part of North Dakota that has much lower home ownership. That actually lines up with, standing, with standing Rock Indian Reservation. Um, no. So there's like these external factors. There's like, well, why is that? Oh, no, it's that's the Indian reservation. And there could also be spotty data here and there. But again, factors outside of population density, things like income levels or local press, maybe just like a local preference or attitude yeah. towards homeownership, lot size, typical lot size, zoning, the age and development, history of a place, timing and interest rate environments. There's a lot of factors again. That can move this rate of home ownership up or down, but the map I think is a useful starting point. A lot of red, yellow, and orange. I, it's like a heat map in the United States right now, man. It's and, and it's what I what I kind of getting back to is like, is there is there a city where it's like, oh yeah, they love home, lo- home owning homes there? I feel like that's like well, cities probably not. Cities are going to be more transient in nature. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, people are moving in, moving out, moving or moving around. You know that you're going to have. It's easier to, you know, it can be easier to live. I guess in rural and urban on you know lower income, but there's more services in cities which attract you know folks of you know lower income because yeah. you can typically more services for those for the income demographic. 
Um, and so, yeah, you're going to see, you know, lower home ownership yeah. rate. But uh, my guess is that it's not like a local attitude, you know, and I, I posited that as one factor, maybe like like if all us was controlled, yeah. a city, a similar size to size city in the Midwest versus the, the West. Is there going to be differences? Now, I think that it is all due to I think it's probably the attitudes are, are shaped largely by the conditions. So like if uh, if it's the tax environment is higher in one versus mm, the other, mm, if there's yeah, all these yeah. things that, that are tied up in it. And I think this is important for apartment investors to know, too, because if it's really great, if if it's really easy to own a home in a certain and there's high ownership, home ownership rate, yeah. then maybe, even, you know, might think twice about investing in apartments in that, yeah. in that county. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, a good starting point for this for this little map. Um, and a good transition, I think, to this Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies article, which is eight short facts about investor activity in the single family rental market. Um, what I think is really notable about this is that is is what they avoid, which is the narrative of corporations moving into town, buying up all the houses and jacking up rent prices. Um, yes, they do note that single family rental investment has increased, but it is kind of a market specific thing. There's so much that can and should be researched here and kind of how land availability and population density may or may not intersect with home ownership. Um, again, like I'd love to know what is it that drives uh, like a rental uh, rental activity versus home ownership activity. Um, but it's not the fact it, it's not necessarily driven by investors. They're not really shaping this thing. Yeah. The more information that comes out, it, the whole idea that you know, corporate landlords are really, you know, buying up all the single family homes. And yeah, a lot, a lot of that is being disproven to being really, you know, not moving the market yeah. the way that you know, the media and some would like to portray. That's, and that's the first point that they have that really sets the tone is single family rentals have long been a substantial part of the rental stock. And I think it is an incredibly important function that's only getting more important in the current high interest rate environment as we're kind yeah. of like carving out a whole new group of home of people. And actually, you know, when single, the argument is that, you know, these corporate landlords or investors or whatever, they're coming in and they're taking homes from homeowners that could live there mm -hmm. and they're turning them into rentals. That is the opposite of gentrification. And so the same people who are, you know, cry, you know, are just so upset that someone is coming in and fixing a house up yeah. so someone could buy it, mm -hmm. which is, it, you know, comes down to, you you know, it's a different, often a different, you know, racial demographic that is buying coming into the neighborhood. And so there's frictions there mm -hmm. of, you know, coming into a neighborhood. Well, when you're taking a single family home that was owner occupied, turning into a rental, you're doing the opposite, which is typically diverse. You're allowing folks of lower income to come into an area. Yeah. And, you know, the recent report that came out, NRJ Parsons um, wrote about it on on a LinkedIn, ends up diversifying um, neighborhoods, you know, racially and, and economically. Yeah. And and so you can't, you know, which one is it? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, no matter what you do, at the end of the day, people don't like people making money on it. The end conclusion is it's like there's a group of people out there that just don't think that there should be any profit in housing. Yes. And then it should be, you know, basically a, you know, uh, um, a, na you know, nationalized or basically it, sh it should be like a utility. Housing should just be a utility that just people have a place to live, which is never, it will, will never, it just, it's, we have sort of tried that of, you know, large national like housing programs and they just, they were ran to the ground. They're horrible. Like yeah. it's a complicated, the same reason why we don't have the government 
you know, running food distribution and food supplies and, yeah. and saying that, you know, because the argument is like, well, everyone needs a home. It's, it's, a, it's a right. You, everyone needs a place to stay. I think as a society, we should say that everyone should have a place to stay. Um, you know, there's no right. You're not, you weren't born with, you know, with, with a house that, that emerges. I mean, we, we yep. humanity live for a long time with, without that type of shelter. Um, but hey, you can say the same thing about that, food. We could, you need build food. That we could build that country, but it doesn't exist yet. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, good, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you could easily say, you know, well, well we need food and water. You know, yeah. and, you know, we do have programs to provide, you know, uh, some basic, you know, n- essential like nutrients, but it's not as though we are outlawing different restaurants, you know, where it's not like we're outlawing um, the steakhouse because their, their food's too expensive and yeah. it's making the other restaurants food more expensive also. Yeah. You know, we, there's different preferences and the idea that we would live in a society uh, that um, there there was not a diversity of options and that you could not, you know, achieve, you know, your goals of, you know, living wherever you want to live in any type of place you want to live. If you, if you can figure it out and if you can afford that, um, you know, that's a sadder environment than the fact that, you know, not everyone has a place to live, which is horrible and sad. But the, the only solution they're suggesting is basically all live in the same type of housing. Let's all live in, you know, concrete, yeah. you know, um, I think that, you know, tenements and then yeah. we'll all be the same and everything will be fine. And we'll all get, a- we'll all get average everybody. Yeah. There are shades. And that's why it's like, there are shades of that impulse that underline a lot of the, the mainstream articles that are, you know, that talk about. You're like, mad that somebody's making money. Yeah. And the, the, yeah, that's exactly. They are not you. And uh, no, that's fine. <laughs> I'm always mad that someone's making money and not me. <laughs> exactly. Who's, they're making money. I'm not making money. And yeah. they're all like, well, someone's I getting wronged in this and you're making money off of it. Got to be me. Um, and just one more point. I won't go through all eight, eight of the points, um, but they did. But uh, there is one. N- number four, investor activity is especially pronounced in Sunbelt markets with strong rent and population growth. Uh, they're following hot markets. Um, I think it's worth noting here. And I forget what the specific source is. But uh, I do remember some interesting research that showed investor presence following high rent growths mm-hmm. rather than causing them. Basically, a lot of investors got in too late to see the full span of the run up in rents for some. So you're markets. saying, Matt, is they're they're watching or they're listening to the Gray Report? They're getting the newsletter, which yeah. is greatcapitalllc.com/newsletter. They're getting the rent reports and then they're making their decisions. Yeah, and so there's so Indianapolis is what so you're. Predicting the call, the call, <laughs> the big call right, yeah. is is indie cap rate compression. And the upshot, really, or why I'm saying this is that like they're not actively moving these markets. They're not moving in and making rent growth happen. They are reactive. They're reacting to what they see. What they see these hot markets and they don't. It's a little bit of a feedback loop though, because I think I, I agree. But then you know that they go go into that market and they put built a business plan that includes continued rent growth. Now maybe they don't get it. But they're going to push for it, you know, and then and then <laughs> their, their eighth point, which which should be the last point I'll cover here, is that uh, these single family rentals, uh, the supply is growing the the construction. So maybe rent rent growth does go up in some of these markets that people see the hot markets that come in. Rent's still keep yeah. raising. Well, what what else could happen there is that incentivizes people to build more homes in that area. And um, maybe they're specifically rental housing, um, but there it could just be more homes. Period. And I think that 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 
the growth in construction of single family and build to rent is worth it, as an independent thing, not just as part of my point about people yeah. following hot markets. Yeah. That's a that's a worthwhile trend to follow because it really does seem like we're carving out an entire new population of uh, of renters of home you know home associated people whether they're owners or renters there's this new thing that's not quite apartment life not quite homeowner life and um and it's meeting it's it's meeting the specific needs of people that want a lot of what ha- of, of that lifestyle of the single family home well, and it's really bringing single family rentals into you know it's been an institutional asset class now for the last decade or so um especially you know Blackstone you know after the great financial crisis coming in buying a ton of single family rentals but it's all been Piece of mail, you know, buying the property here, there, there. We're you know gonna pick a couple markets. We're gonna just try to build as much mass in that market as possible. Yeah, which really you can only achieve if you're a huge scale, hundreds of units, you know, in a market, mm-hmm. a, thou- a thousand units in a market. But it's still hard to manage because you're scattered site. You got your maintenance people driving all around. You got you know you have to have some sort of centralization of operations. Which yeah. on an apartment community, you've got like a you know clubhouse or a leasing center. You got an office. You've mm-hmm. got that central point. But these scattered site single family home communities have been tough. Built to rent is, is the solution yeah. from an op, an operational perspective and a management perspective to allow an institutional group to come in and just to really kind of repeat the process of this is how we're going to manage this community because it's right here. I can have my team on site right here at this asset. I can do one transaction, even though getting into BTR, it's often multiple transactions, rolling clo- rolling closings. Um, on the development side, but once they've been developed and stabilized, and there aren't that many stabilized built rent communities that are being sold. They have been, but typically they're coming out of construction, they're, yeah, they're building. Really new thing. That's what it's, it's like not, it's not like newly invented, but it's like, it, it's essentially new. <laughs> yeah. That's a good, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, I mean, this graph goes back to 1974, there were around, you know, 10,000, single family rental starts. Um, so that could have meant, you know, a single house somewhere that's meant to be a rental, which yeah, has been going off here, going on here and there. And I think it was often semi, maybe not, maybe unintentional isn't the right word, but like they weren't thinking about, you know, the build to rent. We're going to build a community. I think it was yeah. more, we're going to build individual single family homes. But I mean, really starting at t- 2014 and then again, really t- kind of 2020, just huge um, you know, rocket ship up where, you know, in 2020, 2022, um, we delivered about 80,000 single family rentals. Yeah. Um, just the, or as we, st- we started that has maybe not mm-hmm. delivered yet, going to be delivering soon. Yeah. And, and that's why I was always, I'm thinking about, you know, the factors is there, is there more, when, where there's more space for built to rent? Is that where it's going to happen? You know, you can look for a, a lar- much larger footprint and there's just where is it affordable? Where's the demand? Yeah, yeah. You know, and again, we it, it's the demographic story of the late twenties, early mid thirties, into early forties who are starting a family. You know, mm-hmm. form household formation is yeah. you know really high right now because all the millennials are finally like, okay, fine, I'm gonna get married, I'm gonna have kids. Need it now. Let's get out of this apartment. Oh crap, I can't afford a mortgage. We want a house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, it's consumers are going to be leading this and it's following those demographics. And, um, it, so it makes a, it makes a ton of sense. I think it's a good business strategy to keep following the millennial demographic because they're entering, you know, peak earning years or the, you know, largest, um, you know, pop age 
demographic, mm-hmm. you know, outside of the baby boomers, I think they're larger than the, the baby boomers now. And, um, you know, sell, I think selling to millennials and baby boomers is the right strategy. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of regardless of what business you're in, not that Gen Z isn't coming and For Gen real. X, but they're, they're just smaller demographic groups. Mm-hmm. And if you're focused on your traditional, just multifamily, um, that may not be as popular to the largest swath of population. And we can see occupancies go down in traditional multifamily and, you know, get really tight and build to rent. Yeah. Yeah. Now that it's like, not everyone knows it's a thing too. Mm-hmm. It's like you either think of an apartment or I'm going to rent a house somewhere like in just a random neighborhood, you know, in the city or duplex, yeah. um, or I'm going to buy a house. Those are my options. It will be interested to, interesting to see the, you know, how much of a discount you would get as a part of a built-to-rent community than a similar per square foot, a similar square footage if it's just a single family rental. Do you think there would, should be, would be a discount? I think there should be. Because you're, what is it, because a part of the like, Planned community, it's like not the same. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it, it's, but what if you have amenities? Well, what if what if you what if like the community has like a pool and like a workout workout center and stuff like that and grills? Yeah. No, that's a good point. I'm I'm more pickleball. I'm really more thinking of of like you could you know you it, all all being equal, you can undercut you can undercut the rents of a of a sing of a single yeah. family rental if you have less expenses because True. they're more efficient. Yeah, more yeah. If you're a man, you know, I mean, like. Just take the management, like if you're an investor and I'm going to buy a single family rental, I mean, you want to have it managed by a third party, you're paying, you know, a 10% property management fee. I've heard yeah. of even 15 and then plus, you know, uh, you know, you're paying for everything else. I mean, the, the man, the very hard to make money on the single family rentals um, with third party property management. People do, yeah. but it's, it, it, it's a big drain. I mean, and we're charging on the property, property management side closer to like 3%, three and a half percent. And so I gone for a large multifamily. And so the same crisscross in a city trying to tag all Yeah. Those. Think about all the time you're wasting paying yeah. guys paying, you know, for mileage and gas for yeah. driving around where you could just have everybody in the same spot. Take a golf cart around. Take a take a golf cart. Take a game. Yeah. All right, Matt. Great set of reports. Thank you. Digging digging into some interesting topics. Make sure you leave us some comments. Um we'll get back to them next week. Comments. Yeah, just yeah. we're supposed to do it this week. We we can do it next week. We're gonna do it next week. So fill up the comments we're going to hit all of them get your responses and again make sure you're signed up for the great report newsletter you can find that at greatcapitalllc.com slash report um you know if you're a credit investor sign up for the great capital investor portal see what we got going on over there to make sure you are updated as soon as we have an awesome deal and we've got some cool stuff we've been working on so you're going to want to stay tuned and be in the loop on that again accredited investors only appreciate you taking the time with us Thanks, Matt. It's a good one. All right. See you guys later.